there. Welcome to Motorcycles and Misfits, not at the Recycle Garage and nope, not, not in sunny Santa Cruz, California. We're in sunny, where? Hollister. Hollister, California, California, in the Corbin Garage. This is the Corbin Cast. This is where the magic happens, apparently. And we are in the middle of the garage, the R&D department, with uh, all sorts of stuff. We'll describe what we're yep. looking at around Who's us. Who's here today with us? In the garage tonight, this is Liza. Next up, we have Zach. Oh, hi. And we got Mike. <laughs> hey, what's up? Fruit Loop. <laughs> Jonathan. This is your friend, Jonathan. Knock. Yes. Bagel. Aloha. And the other Mike. Hi. Hey, <laughs> that would be Mike Corbin himself. So again, thank you for letting us come down and do this. As I told you, we like to feature Northern California. Like this is our biker community. This is our, you know, this is we're so lucky all the community we have here in Northern California, um, especially to have people who have really accomplished and 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 added to the whole motorcycling thing for years and our second ama hall of fame uh, guest that is, so correct. This is pretty cool mm. too yep craig vetter a- ama hall of fame dude this what? is this is mike is you look starstruck yeah <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on yes. he just <laughs> or you haven't had your coffee yeah not enough <laughs> so um Mike, we're here to get your story, find out what's going on. I think most people know about Corbin, the Corbin factory, Corbin seats, but let's get your, the nickel history tour of how you started, how you got here. Well, I, um, I started when I was young. This company full-time is actually almost 48 years old now. Wow. So we started full-time in 1968. And I made seats for two or three years before that part-time. Wow. I was an electrical contractor, and I did it on the side. <clears throat> so um, now the next goal is a couple more years. I'll actually have 50 years as Mike Corbin. Cool. Uh. So, okay, you started out, you, you were in the, let's see the story, you were in the Navy. I I was in the Navy when I was 17, and I was out a couple months before I was 21 years old. And then I became an electrical contractor. And was that where you learned about the world of motorcycles, or did you start earlier? No, I started earlier, and um, when I was 14 and a half, I stole this guy's BSA. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's I a like statute what, of limitations I thing like, you're asking uh, about. Yeah. yeah. Of course, this I is, think you're safe. This is before he taught me how to ride it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I hit a tree down at the end of the street. Oh, Ooh. You really did steal and, it. And bent his front end. Oh, oh man. So then he uh, came up my house and beat me up. <laughs> wow. wow. My father finally stopped him. He didn't stop him right away. <laughs> <laughs> That'll learn him. <laughs> Te- teach him a lesson. Right. Uh, that's yeah, enough. Okay. Making my job easy. <laughs> oh, man. So then I had... Um, been saving money for years and I had to go buy a new set of fork tubes and learn how to install them on a lightning so I fixed the guy's bike and that's how I started so you were mechanically inclined or yeah I was kind of a science club kid you know I was kind of a geek when I was a kid so do you think that motorcyclists are born this way or does society create them? <laughs> a little from column A, a little from column B, maybe? <laughs> well, you know, I, I know how we started. Uh, my, my, my brother and I, uh, we went to the 
you know, the Wild One movie. Mm-hmm. And we decided that he was the freest, toughest guy we ever saw. Yeah. Right. And I think, uh, see, the movie came out in 54, so I was 11, and my brother was about 8, you know. And my father forbid us to drink beer, smoke cigarettes, or go to the Wild One movie. <sighs> so we stole a quarter shafe of beer. <laughs> <laughs> A few camel cigarettes. Of course, in those days, you could smoke in movies. And we went to watch The Wild One every Saturday that we could. (laughs) (laughs) I was back in a time when there was no such thing as buying it on VHS. You had had to go to the movie every time you wanted to see it. Yep. It was only the Orpheum. That's all we had. Yeah. Wow. And that turned out to be somewhat prophetic now that you're here in Hollister. Yeah, that was a long story, a long trek. And um, and, uh, we ended up here, yeah. Which uh, I... I think we've mentioned before, but Hollister was where the event happened that was the basis of the movie, of the bikers coming yeah. into town. That's right. They, the incident happened in 46, then in 47 they nixed the rally as a result of the famous exposure from Life magazine and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Which everybody was, was overly paranoid. <laughs> and then the movie was made and uh, came out in 1954. Marlon Brando and Lee Marvin. Okay. Which really created uh, the bad biker image. It really spread that. It did, and it, uh, you know, the incident was nothing more than a little bit of shuffling around. Yeah. yeah. The, but, that photo uh, was staged, from what I understand, right? The, uh, the, the infamous photo of that dude on the bike or whatever, from what I understand. Well, he wasn't even a motorcycle rider. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> you know, they actually propped him up. No, they did. He was that guy, and he had kind of like work khakis on. Yeah. They sat him on a bike, and uh, then they put a bunch of beer bottles all around him, took a picture for Life magazine. <laughs> so, so what's different? You know, they're selling magazines. They're all happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They don't care what they do to us. Or Yeah, they're just looking for the controversy to sell, sell more paper. But, you know... Not so much these days, but in those days, you think the 40s, so you're just post-WW2, right? Right. People believe what life told them. Right. And they believe what the Wall Street Journal told them. I mean, we don't believe anything they tell us anymore, but... um, And it did. It shaded motorcycling. Hey, but it's given us all cool cred. (laughs) Except for Bagel. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. They need to make a badass movie about... About scooters? Scooters. Yeah, they're working working on it. (laughs) So, so let's see. The the legend goes, you had a bike. You made a seat for it. Just... I guess my question is, why did you make a seat for a bike? Did it need one? Yeah, well, then... So, um... I was in the Navy, and um, I was on aircraft carrier, but one of our ports was uh, Alameda Naval Air. Mm -hmm. So this is in 61, 63, in and out of there all the time. And I used to go over to Broadway at night, and the Hells Angels were kind of getting started up. Right. Oakland. And and we used to watch the Hells Angels and think that we would like to be a Hells Angel someday. And we admired their just freedom. You know, these guys do what they want to do. And here yeah. we are. We're sailors. we got to get these short haircuts and <laughs> have white hats on. And so that was appealing to me. And the, the first bikes that were street choppers, after the bobber thing, the Hells Angels kind of got the street chopper thing going. They would take Ironhead Sportsters and extend the front end, and they'd put different kind of ape hangle bars on them and bob defenders. 
And that was really the first custom street bike besides Barber's, which right. was just before that. So we developed a taste for what those guys were, and everything they did is what we wanted to do. Yeah, gotcha. So then I got out of the Navy, and I went home to um, Massachusetts, and I, um, I bought a Norton Atlas because that was the biggest bike you could buy at the mm-hmm. time. It was 750cc. Before that, I had a Triumph at 650. So then I was fooling around in my garage, and I bobbed the fenders, and I used a bicycle ape hanger bar. Right. They didn't have them in real motorcycle bars <laughs> in those days. You had to be careful you didn't bend it. And then I, I got to the seat, and it didn't look too good. So I um, took it all apart, and I reshaped it with an electric turkey knife and a hacksaw blade and some sandpaper. And the lady next door to me was an con- uh, industrial seamstress, and she sewed up a really nice cover for it. So I think in 1965, I went to a rally at Grafton, New Hampshire. And uh, just a side note, in those days when you went to rally, the bikes came in a motel room. Mm-hmm. Or they yep. wouldn't be there in the morning, right? Yeah, right. right. This is before, like, the, there weren't really Japanese bikes there. This is all no, going to be British it was and an American, English, right? English bike world in the 60s. Yeah. yeah, right. I get all the numbers in my head if you want them. But <laughs> so this guy, he had an Atlas, and he said, Man, I like your seat. I want to buy it. I said, I can't sell you my seat. How am I going to get home? <laughs> he says, Well, it's really nice out. Fold your jacket up, sit on that. <laughs> he's got it all worked out for you so he says I'll give you $40 for it so that's like $400 now yeah. 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 so that's about what a simple seat selling for these days so I'll tell you in 1965 nobody had $10 in their pocket you know yeah. mm-hmm. so I took his 40 bucks and I went home and I had a, a my garage was a workshop we used to make electrical panels in there so I started making another seat <clears throat> And my helper came along. He says, make me one from Ironhead Sports Drive. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. It's just a hobby. And he said, well, you don't have to pay me next week. And I go, hey, Jimmy, you got a deal. <laughs> I wasn't going <laughs> to nice. pay you anyway. <laughs> so I, uh, I made him a seat for his Ironhead Sports Drive, and he went to Sal Skirple's Harley Davidson in Hartford, Connecticut. And Sal was a big hero. He had won the Jack Pine the year before. And uh, he was our motorcycle icon guy. And he, he said, where'd you get the seat? He says, well, Mike made it. He says, well, I thought he was an electrician. Yeah, he just does this. So he ordered five of them. Uh, <laughs> cool. Just like that. So then I did it part-time for a couple of years, you know, and it built up, built up, built up. And um, my electrical business was kind of formulated in Connecticut around Pratt, Whitney, Sikorsky, Colts. I did a lot of industrial three-phase electricity. Mm-hmm. And Nixon started running for president. You guys are too young to remember this. Oh, but. not me. <laughs> so in 1968, he runs. He's the platform is I'm going to end the Vietnam War. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we wanted it ended, but all my business was revolving around military companies, you know. Yeah. So I had to make a decision anyway. Am I going to be in a motorcycle business or am I going to be an electrical contract? Because I was really busy doing both. And I chose motorcycles, you know. Always the right choice, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, at first, it didn't seem like a great idea. I starved to death the first winter. Oh, man. Because I sold my electrical trucks to that same Uh kid, Jimmy. He bought both my trucks. And now I can't do electrical work on any scale at all. I was still wearing houses. And... um, and I, I starved to death the first winter. In 1969, 
the Easy Rider movie came out. Boom. Mm. Right there. Oh, man. Yep. And a Honda 750K1, Bike of the Century, came Talk out. Talk about yeah. right place, right time. Is that, is that when you kind of found out, like, oh, wait a minute, I have a name now, like... My 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 Corbin, I, I make seats. This is what's happening. Yeah, I actually, you know, my real name's actually Hannigan. Yeah, and um, mm-hmm. still is. And um, my mother told me, you have to get a fictitious name statement. You have to make up a company name to form a company. So I was sitting in my pickup truck in West Hartford, Connecticut, at Corbin's Corner, and I go, "Well, oh, just Corbin Manufacturing. I like the way wow. that sounds." Huh. Cool. And there it is. So I went down and did that, put it in a paper, and I got like a little LLC thing from the state so I could take payroll taxes. And um, and then um, everybody started calling me Mike Corbin. Huh. So a couple of years later, I went out and copywrote it and trademarked it. Hmm. Okay. How All right. Cool. That, that is cool. cool. Yeah. Uh, for a second, I, I thought you were actually Mike Corbin. That was like your last name. Yeah, it is. I did not know that. Boy, it's more than a <laughs> second on. for me. Well, I it is now. Like <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he created this sure. persona. This is right. Yeah, so you don't really create it. It just kind of comes your way. It's like a butterfly. You can't catch them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about the Easy Rider movie? The Easy Rider movie changed the world. Um, so I'll give you those numbers. Yeah. In the '60s, there was about sixty thousand new motorcycle registrations in the United States each year. Mm-hmm. And about 35,000 of those bikes were Triumphs. Only 8,000 or so were Harleys. Wow. In the mid-70s, with 10 years later, there was a million and a half new bikes a year registered. And they were all Whoa. Japanese. Almost everyone was Japanese. Hmm. So the world just literally exploded from 60,000 bikes a year to a million and a half bikes a year. Wow. So in 68, I was starving to death, me and a couple guys. In the mid-70s, 250 people making seats all day long. Wow. Wow. And you didn't have uh, issues scaling that production up, did you? Or was it were you scrambling to get people to work for you? Or um, in, um, in those days, it was easy to get people who were craftsmen. Yeah. I mean, yeah. people would get out of high school and they wanted to learn trades. Right. Um, and we didn't have any choice. I mean, the demand, the telephone demand and the way things are going, you either go hide in the sand or get the job done. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it, yep. was a, it wasn't a business model. I mean, this is not MBA stuff. I mean, the phone just jumped up and down off the desk all day long. Yeah. Wow. You know, because there was such a, a growth. Ah. It's like a bomb going off. Yeah, it was just the natural response to it. You, just, you had yeah. to do it. Yeah. yeah. We weren't business people. We were trying to figure out how to sew more Nagahide. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Does that you correspond know? with uh, with Vetter Fairings? Vetter is, the uh, time yeah, we... he's almost the same era. He started, I think Vet started full-time in 66, and he was an industrial designer. Mm-hmm. And he fooled around with Fairings in college. And uh, he was a little bit ahead of Arlen Ness and myself. Arlen is the grandfather of choppers. Yeah. Right. All three of us, like Sonny Barger, Arlen Ness, Vet, a um, few more guys, all are in that same era. We're all about the same age now. Yeah. So I'm just grasping. You were there for the birth of the Hell's Angels. That it wasn't really the birth of the Hell's Angels. What it was is they were from L.A. before. Yeah. Hmm. And then Sonny 
kind of got it going, got it more organized. He has natural leadership talent. Like he's kind of like well organized and he had been in the army and he understood leadership values and, you know, and credibility and trustworthiness and stuff like that. So he was a great leader and he pulled those guys together in the, in the 60s. That's amazing. I'm going to have to do another just side interview sometime about that because I'm fascinated with that whole thing. What was your relationship with him? Well, I didn't know him very well then. Uh, I admired him, and I used to say hi to him. We were a little bit standoffish, you know, because um, they were kind of like the tough guys, mm -hmm. and we were just Navy technicians, you know what I mean? So we're all squared away. Were you, you know? a squid? Mm -hmm. No, I would, no, I was actually a snipe. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a difference. So, um, I'm curious. So, what? So, what bikes were you riding? So, you, you start this company. Now you, you're you're all in. And um, are you the type of person who has one bike at a time, or or do you have many bikes? Yeah. What? Where in the 70s? Like? Yeah. The birth of, birth of yeah the 60s yeah. and the 70s. Well, what I started doing is it was hard to borrow bikes in those days, so I would buy the latest thing that came out. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I had the second K1 in Manchester, Connecticut. Wow. <laughs> and um, so, and I had, yeah. you know, I was building um, custom bikes, but mostly we're not so much a custom bike builder. We're trying to develop parts for street bikes. That's right. You were doing more parts then. Yeah. Not just seats. You were you were doing everything. Yeah. So then we had one great invention, one great patent. Like the Honda 754 was the first one I did. Mm -hmm. And the seat, as you know, it flips on the hinges, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have one. Yeah, the seat was terribly uncomfortable. So we made a seat with a backrest on it mm -hmm. for the passenger, 14 inches high, welded it all up. And we still made it work on the hinges. So the whole seat flipped, including the backrest part. Oh. Hmm. And I got a U.S. patent on that. And that kept us going for years. Yeah. And I applied it to a lot of other bikes, too. Self-supporting high-back motorcycle seat. Mm -hmm. hmm. Mike, I got a question. Um, so it, it sounds like originally you started making seats, and it, it sort of took off with, with people you knew, kind of, kind of sprung to life on its own. Um, is it... Did it become your passion or was it just such that you start doing this thing and then oh man people are buying them so you kept doing it yeah. yeah yeah well when i was uh when i when i was going through high school you know i wanted to be an electrician uh -huh. you know i i built a robot in high school and i used to be a remote control airplane i was the first guy with an rc plane in my town yeah cool and i flew it into the high school almost burned it down <laughs> <laughs> We had a few rockets land on the fire department. You know. <laughs> that was like, our side hobby, you know. Things uh, crashing and exploding. Oh, yeah. Like, th you know, things happen, you know. Yeah. And, it, and we were always innocent. Yeah. You know, every time. Oh, yeah. But um, uh, so I wanted to be an electrician. I had gotten into college, but my parents didn't have any money. And in those days, if you, even if you got a little scholarship, you couldn't afford to go to college if your parents didn't have any money. So I decided, well, the next best thing is I'll just join the Navy, I'll see the world, and I'll come out and I'll be a master electrician. So that all worked out pretty Good well. Good plan. But I didn't, and I love motorcycles. You know, I stole that kid's BSA. Then I had a Lambretta scooter. Oh, there you nice. go, Bagel. Cool. Then, then when I was in, in a, a senior, I bought a Triumph 
and I rode that to California when I was in the Navy, and I had it for a couple of years, and I sold it before I got out of the Navy and went home and bought an Atlas. But okay. I, n I never saw a way to be part of motorcycling. I thought you had to follow through with your professional trade ambition, you know, to be able to support yourself. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't think I wanted to be a motorcycle dealer, you know. Yeah. But... I, but but I had a good ability to make things, you know, like electrical panels, and I used to, and I was an automation troubleshooter in the Navy. So I learned a lot about how to make things and get ideas and solve problems, you know. And that's what I did on the Ranger. And um, so when I made the first seat, it was actually really easy for me. Yeah. You know? So it wasn't like I. It wasn't like you had this burning passion to make seats. You just were like, "Well, this thing needs a seat, so I'll make it." Yeah. Well, I wanted to fix my bike up and go to Grafton yeah. and have the coolest Atlas in town, and sure. I did that. You know, so my bike was pretty cool. I didn't look that cool leaving without a seat, but I had the forty dollars. <laughs> so so I, I want to make sure we don't completely skip over this badass moment that just flew past. You rode a Triumph right. cross country. Cross country. What size Triumph? Say. Well, that's another good story. So I had a Triumph Bonneville and uh, 1960, and I, um, I went to boot camp and school at the Great Lakes, and I went back to Boston after I graduated from school, and I had to get to San Francisco. So I did pretty good in electrician school, so you get to pick your billet, you know, yeah. what's available in the Navy. I go, man, San Francisco, USS Ranger, that's as far as away from Boston as mm. you can get. I'm going there. <laughs> so I sent my sea bag on a Greyhound bus to San Francisco to a gas station, I called the guy. And then I rode my tramp across country. And um, you learn you can't go much over 65 miles an hour on a 60 Bonneville right. and break apart, right? Mm -hmm. So it took me about a week. And so I go on a ship and... Um, this is what they call strikers now. So you get out of school, and you're not really a, a certified electrician in the Navy yet until after about a year, you know. So there's this old chief there, and he goes, <clears throat> you. So you graduated from A school. Yeah. So, um, so you think you're an electrician. You think you can fix things on an aircraft carrier? And I go, well, I'll tell you, chief. I rode from Boston here on a Triumph. <laughs> <laughs> Carrying the Prince of Darkness with you the whole way, huh? Badass moment. <laughs> and he goes, you're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. I got Lucas behind me right now. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. So let's talk about how you merged being an electrician and the motorcycle world. Well, the electrician, being an electrician was good because, you know, you're a hands-on fix-it guy. You have a really good ability to learn how things work. Then I made the seat. I didn't plan that. You know, my father was actually a chair designer when I was a kid, and my grandfather was a tailor. Mm -hmm. But I didn't ah. want to learn mm -hmm. what they knew. You know, I wanted to, like, my father was a toolmaker, chair designer. This little town I was from was the chair capital of the world in the 40s and the 50s. Hmm. What town? What town are you? Gardner, Massachusetts. All right. I lived, I lived yep. in Boston for a while. Oh yeah, well you know Gardner, they still sell furniture there in Gardner, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Yeah, I went to Harvard, but I know Boston a little bit. But um, mm -hmm. the um, I didn't think it was going to be a product. I just went to the rally. And then I realized, hey, people will buy these. And then I realized I can be in the motorcycle industry, which is what I love doing. Mm -hmm. The only reason I worked is to have a bike. You know, <laughs> that sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> children, children eat food too. You need to yeah. get that too. Sure, right. sure. 
But um, but then I realized I can be in a motorcycle business, so I chose that. It's kind of your way into the way, way into that world. It's kind of like the way you could, yeah, sort of sort of um, marry into that world with some skills that you seem to have naturally. Yeah. And it they would buy to see. Right. You know, and it was at a profit so I could support my wife and three kids and right. and do it. You Fascinating, know. too, that your uh, your father was a furniture maker and your grandfather was a tailor. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like what you know, what you originally started doing with the seats was almost um, it was almost a, a marriage of those two skill sets, you know. Yeah. And I you know, I love talking about the seats. I, I really think that there's some genealogy there because right off the bat, we get on top of the whole industry. I yeah. mean, we were it. We had the first actual factory that made aftermarket seats. Before that, seats were made by Mm -hmm. tailors or trim shops Mm -hmm. or redone stock seats. Right. So we were the first one that said, we have a line of aftermarket seats. See what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's so many different avenues. I want to go down with you so many questions. But let's just get this this seat thing done because I want to make sure people know... um, Corbin seats are the best quality seat I've I've had. I've had many Corbin seats on my bikes, and people sit on it and go, it's so hard. How can you ride on this? Well, you go do 3,000 miles, and it becomes apparent, the difference. The other thing, too, is in um, the garage that we all work in, this co-op garage where we fix up old bikes, we get old bikes donated all the time that have been sitting in somebody's yard. We'll get a rusty bucket of a bike for free. And the most valuable thing on it is the Corbin seat, because I've never gotten one with a tear. I mean, you just need to put some leather replenisher on there, you know, and and oh, sell that on eBay. That'll pay for all the parts to fix up your bike. <laughs> yeah, probably get you a new bike. Yeah. So I have a lot of respect for Corbin seats, even things that you don't even realize you're getting on, like a, I think it's the Gunfighter, where you're getting actually lower back support. You don't even think it it's there but it, that but that just dips down so perfect the other thing I, I don't think let's see so if somebody is interested in a Corbin seat there's a couple things that are pretty amazing that I don't think anybody is doing one you can order online and you have this website now that you can design a virtual seat yeah which is really cool so you pick your bike and then you can pick this is the other thing who does this how many different colors and patterns like alligator and crocodile and and ostrich or carbon fiber or yeah i mean have you added up how many different options somebody has you just see our safari guys that got to go out and kill all those critters (laughs) 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 no actually and, and all those materials are actually cowhide leather cowhide yeah you know um we don't use exotic material hardly ever anymore uh well we um we just realized that um people like options yeah um and we run the whole gambit you know we have carbon fiber for sport bike people Mm -hmm. um people like gators and and um sometimes the only thing you can do with a black street glide is get on and get a really neat seat for it yeah, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's the only way. It's your bike, really. Yep, right, yeah. exactly. You got a black street glide. I mean, half the market's got a black street glide, right? Yeah, yeah. Fring, so, yeah, fringe, rhinestones, pinstriping, stitching, anything you want. You our can biggest make. challenge is, you know, don't let the customer go too far and mess his bike up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like people will try too hard and 
All of a sudden, we call them Tijuana seats. He <laughs> 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 said, that was a really nice bike until he put seven colors in his seat. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but, but you can do it. The other thing that is really above and beyond just almost any company of any type is that you can make an appointment, ride your bike here, and get... Uh, suited up with, uh, I call them the craftsmen. What are you calling them? They're they're seat builder craftsmen. Yeah. Um, we have uh, wonderful people here. That's the secret to any business is the people. You know. And they will custom make a seat and literally carve it to your ass. Yep. And then sew it up and send you off on the road with a custom to you to your ass seat. Well, see, and then the the big. The big thing there is it really satisfies the riders. Yeah. yeah. And couples come in with their bike, and we get both of them to agree, here's the compromises for mm-hmm. logistics and seating platforms. And That's colors. impossible, couples compromising. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe you can do that. Yeah, well, sometimes uh, it's always a room negotiation. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, it it's really good for the customer, and they love doing it. And there's not many places you can go and see anything being made. But the secret to Corbin and the sustainability of Corbin is we are so grounded with the people who ride our seats. We understand them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm an engineer, and I come here on Saturdays just to see what people pick out. You know, I, besides visiting with you folks today, I talked... I had good conversations with at least eight people in customer service. So I'm knowing what they're thinking when they're coming through the door. Right. Then I see how satisfied they are when they leave. And one thing that almost never doesn't happen is they compliment us on our people. Yep. Hmm. So our people know that the ball game goes like this. Mike knows, but those people thought of the job I did on their bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's and, like, oh, sorry, good. And that just reeks through the company. Yeah. That's why we're here. We're not here to work for Mike. We're here to make motorcycle people happy. Yeah. Mm. Cool. And, that, and that's like extremely rare where a customer can actually talk to the guy who owns the business and talk about the seat or even talk about a trip that they had well, earlier today. Well, not you know? just that. He's not just a guy who bought a business from somebody. Right. This is a biker dude. Right, yeah. Yep. Who He's likes a, to talk about biker shit. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, over the years, we've had a couple different companies think about buying Corbin. And in a couple of the recessions, it seemed like a pretty good idea to me. Right. But, um, and they, they do their due diligence, you know, and they come in here and they'll spend, you know, a week. And they right. get all done. This, this isn't Corbin motorcycle seats. This yeah. is Corbin and his family. There's no way you can deal with it. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, and it's still, and it isn't just seats. I mean, we've got a slingshot behind me. Is that your slingshot? Yes, it is ours, yeah. That you're custom designing these integrated, like, bags. They don't look like bags. It looks like part of the body that's going to give you storage under the t- under the tail. It's hard to describe a slingshot if, you don't, or if you're not familiar with this three-wheel, two-seat vehicle. But you're not just slapping stuff on you're making it integrated so um also behind me let's see we've got one of the new uh, uh triumphs or ducati scramblers that looks like it's getting a, a seat designed for that and what's what's behind me this is a bonneville that's carl's speed shop in uh, daytona beach florida yeah and anybody who studies bonneville partial streamliners Carl has always been on the leading edge. He was one of their first 
real fairing sportster guys out there and now his son rides that doug and that bike has about 14 different records wow wow Mm -hmm. they recent well in the last few years the rules have been modified more and more on partial streamliners so the body that came off the bike was from the old rules in the late 90s Mm. but they've given us the ability now to make the tail longer and the nose longer so we're making a new body for that bike and that bike actually has about six engines and these guys are serious that's a serious bike that bike will go over 250 like nothing wow jesus because not only do you make seats i mean you make all this other stuff but you have this amazing fiberglass workshop so you really can make anything here Mm. We can make anything, and we're great students of aerodynamics. Yeah. So you go to the slingshot. The slingshot's the latest hot thing in the motorcycle industry. It's not really... It's in every industry. People buy them that never rode motorcycles. Mm -hmm. But they have almost no storage. And then the back is kind of hollow. It looks like a stink bug. You know, you just got... (laughs) Just kind of got the wheel sticking out. and You know, it's got a high license plate thing, and you wonder... The wheel's out there by itself. It's kind of like an F3 Spider, you know? So we designed the two saddlebags to go with the shape of the bike. Now, the ones you're looking at right now are in polyurethane plastic. Mm-hmm. But they're in the paint shop, a pair's in a paint shop, and we're going to take that to Sturgis with a pair of them all painted up. Nice. So that's our next marketing thing was... My friend is going to drive that thing around for two weeks in Sturgis, and every slingshot person is going to know saddlebags are available. Did you design those bags yourselves, or did yeah. you have your engine? Yeah, I had. I, I I gave a sketch yeah. to one of my best model builders. Yeah, and I said, "Okay, Fred, you got it, got it." So he he did the whole thing, and then we were we didn't have enough time, so. My my senior model builder, the guy that builds all the Sparrow stuff for me, he's been doing it for 30 years. I put him on the other bag, so they each did one bag to get it done in time for Sturgis. Yeah. We already have the seats in that car from, from Corbin. So that's a product development at its highest form. So we have a big investment in those molds. You know, we have a rotor molding process mm-hmm. to make bags like that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and we do the Can-Am Spiders, too. We did the uh, RS and then the F3 and all that, too. So, I mean, basically, I mean, the bottom line is Corbin shit is cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. Check this out. So I wanted to get back to, I was talking about merging your uh, electrical world and the motorcycle world. Because you, I guess the... You could say that the the seats and the the business have afforded you to explore new territories. So you did something pretty cool back in the was it sixty eight when you made the electric bike. The um, the the first I started out in about sixty eight or sixty nine I made an electric scooter. Okay, was anyone making electric two wheeled vehicles then? Not, nobody had a product. Okay. Nobody had a product. And then in um, <clears throat> 73, I brought the X1 on the market. So it was a, a 35-35 vehicle. Went go 35 miles an hour for 35 miles. And we called it City Bike. And it was a Corbin Gentry product made in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And it had three XI batteries in it and a Baldor motor and chain drive. And we sold about 100 of those. And that was the gas line 
days. You guys probably don't remember mm-hmm. the gas line. I, yep. The 73. Yep. So I thought we were going to have a great product and it was going to help the company get bigger, you know. <clears throat> but then the gas came back and uh, we had probably a bad year financially and decided that we couldn't keep spending money on that. So we dropped it. So then that... Um, everybody used to say in those days that electric vehicles was slow. So I set in uh, 73, I sent the land speed record for electric motorcycle at 101. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that was a so, big middle finger to him. Huh? All of it. Oh, it was. <laughs> I, got, I got a question. If you had only gone 40, would you have set the record? Was there anyone else doing electric? No. Okay. No, no, no. There, we couldn't even go to Bonneville. They said, no, you're not coming to Bonneville. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have an electric motorcycle. There's no way you guys are coming out here. First of all, you're from Connecticut. And we don't even... <laughs> We're all from L.A. Damn, yeah. We're all from L.A. And uh, you guys talk funny and you're not coming out here. <laughs> and the AMA doesn't want you out here. Nobody wants you out here. In those oh, days, you had to have an AMA number and yeah. an SCATA number, right? Yeah. So I um, called the AMA, and I was a, a short tracker in New England Sports Committee, and they knew me a little bit. And I said, what do I got to do to get a Bonneville number? And go, well, if you, you know, we could help you with that. And we gave him a donation. <laughs> That's what like that you means. Helped them. So they gave me 24A, right. A, yeah. which means, I don't know what it means, but it ain't right. good. We could help you with that. Insert wing here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that all went good. So we went out. And I got the record at 101. Yeah. Go so big we, or go home. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Go big or go home. And it was an aluminum chassis salt liner bike that carried a lot of Exide batteries. Yeah. And I used uh, DC traction motors. And then I went home and got to thinking about it more and more. And I go, man, 200 is going to be a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And everybody was saying, I never thought we'd see an electric vehicle go 100 miles an hour. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was the first guy on a motorcycle, electric motorcycle, to go over 100 miles an hour. I get a, a question. The, um, the, the Another podcast we had where they were talking about the salt flats a little bit was that there's different uh, classes to get in. There's different sizes of engines. And then I know you're dealing with this, Bagel, because mm-hmm. you got to figure out where you fit in. And then, like, there's uh, the one where you go, is it 10 miles? You have to go 10 miles and then come back. And then you do it twice, and that's how you get your record? Well, like, there's the no, three, the five, and that? the ten. It's not the ten. Okay. Yeah. It's what you call a flying mile. Yep. So on motorcycles, basically, you got two miles to accelerate. Yeah. You take the light, mm-hmm. and they measure you for the next flying mile. So mile two to mile three is the speed that they're going to get you at. Oh, uh, okay. Yep. Then you start decelerating on three. Hmm. Part, uh, liners, big bikes, like 400-mile-an-hour stuff, they have... They'll take it sometimes on a four to the five or a five to the six. And if the track's long enough, it depends on a year. Because yeah. the salt grading varies every year. But they measure your flying mile. Then when you're setting, you have to do a flying mile number to qualify. Yeah. Then the next day or on Wednesday early in the morning, you go out there and you go that way. And within one hour, you got to come back and go the other way. On those two flying miles are average for your, and if you beat the, the existing record, you're a new champ. Huh. So, did you go back the next year? Yeah. So then, um, this company, Yardney Electric, called me up, and they were in Pocketuck, Connecticut, and they made silver zinc batteries for nuclear-powered submarines. Mm-hmm. Cool. cool. Yeah, and this guy. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> this guy, Dr. Patricelli, I'll never forget. The, he was a PhD of electrical engineering, uh, uh, naval engineering or something. He was president of his company. He was kind of a hellraiser, this yeah. guy. <laughs> he had been a Navy, which you might call it, junior admiral or something. He had a PhD from Harvard. He goes, you know, um, I'm going to tell you about energy density. Like, you're, you're the fastest guy in the world on an electric power motorcycle with with uh, Sears batteries. <laughs> <laughs> so until then, no vehicles had moved on batteries other than lead-acid cells. Yeah. Never. And, and I've, I, I used to research it. I could never find anything in the world that a, a vehicle moved on anything other than lead-acid cells. Road vehicles, at least. Yeah, road yeah. vehicles. Well, I Probably moonshots, you know. They had, yeah. And that was it. Eagle Picture was, they made the batteries for the Lunar Rover. And that's all in the same era. Cool. So he says, we got silver zinc batteries, and they're five times better than lead. So I thought he was exaggerating. And lighter? Well, you just take the pound, and you get five times as much. You can power out of that. Yeah, you build Mm -hmm. build to the weight of the bike, and if um, the physics comes out, you get about five times more energy. So... So I said, well, how much do they cost? He says, well, there's $100,000 worth of silver in it. <laughs> 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 now, we're talking 1973, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of damn silver. silver is trying to explode, too. That's a lot that of time. 1973 dollars. Right? Yeah. 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 Right. You remember how happy I was with the $40? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just, just like five years before, like you were, you were pretty thrilled with $40. Yeah. yeah. So I said, well, who has that much money for silver? He says, well, you know, the Navy has a vault in our building. <laughs> and it's, it's an in-and-out register, and that's where they keep the silver for the nuclear power submarine batteries. Yeah. And, but it all belongs to the Navy. You know, I'm like, and I said, well, what do you do? He says, well, we take that silver out of the vault, and we build your batteries. I'm there, oh, man, don't tell the Navy about this. <laughs> <laughs> We knew a guy in Alameda who had stole a Jeep off of Alameda Naval Air. He went to Leavenworth for 15 years. Wow. <laughs> so um, we, we built a battery, and we went to Bonneville, and we, uh, we ended up with a record of uh, 165.382 seconds. But we, were hit, we hit 200 miles an hour one day, and the trap broke, and we had a one-way trap speed of 191 one day. Oh. Wow. So we are way up there, way out of the stratosphere on electric-powered motorcycles. And are you, you're riding. Yeah, I rode it. I get a question. Uh, I get another question because I know that there's, it, like, like you guys, when you guys went to the factory for the zero bikes, that, like, there's a lot of torque on them, and it's, like, a, a steady a steady ride. But does the, does the battery, like, do you, are you worried at any point that, like, does it start out and just go, and then you get up to speed right away, and you're riding that speed, or is it like a really gradual thing, and well, then you lock it in? You well, no, the modern the, the modern zero zero is a great bike. Mm-hmm. Um, you have perfect control with that throttle, so they the the modern controllers you can run that thing at one rpm. Mm-hmm. So it's up to you. But if 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 you're not alerted and you go grab it like you would a gas bike, you'll get too much too soon. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do when you walk up to a zero, and especially if you walk up to a lightning, yeah. mm-hmm. get a little indoctrination here because you can kill yourself quick. <laughs> yep. But both of them have beautiful controllers in them. You just want to realize that you're dealing with something that can give you all its torque in a microsecond. Yeah. I mean, that bike can stand straight up and put you on your brain. <laughs> yeah. You know? 
But does does it lose what I'm saying is like say if you're going for that first two miles, like are you worried that as it's wearing out the battery, like do, do you need to get up to speed and stay at speed as fast like as soon as possible or it's about traction, isn't no, it? No, the faster you get to speed, the more power you used. Okay. It's and so then it, once you get to speed, the motor RPM comes up and it's a little bit more efficient. Yeah. And it takes less power to cruise than it does to accelerate. Kind of like highway miles. It's like highway miles. Mm-hmm. And it would be just like if you watch a mileage on your gas car. Yeah. You know, you go stand on that thing and you're just burning gas, you know. Yeah. Um, and you can learn how to do that by watching your gas car MPH or MPG, you know. It changes as you accelerate. Yeah. Yeah, I got a, a a GMC, and it tells you what it's doing all the yeah, time. Yeah, if you're being economical. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in the old days, in Quicksilver's days, in the early 70s, we didn't have controllers. I mean, there was no way to deal with that It was like a light amps. switch. <laughs> so we had... The, the way Quicksilver set the record is I invented an electromagnetic controller. Hmm. There was no electronic controllers that could deal with that kind of amperage. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So I built this uh, progressive magnetic controller. I started out at 12 volts, and then I went to 60 volts, and I went to 120 volts. So I'd take off, like, in steps. Mm-hmm. I had to tow it with a car up to 60 because the wheel would just spin on the salt. Right. So we, we, couldn't, we couldn't do a soft takeoff. Mm. You know, it was impossible. Yeah. So we had a tow rope and then a release mechanism. So I'd, they towed me up to about 60, and I popped the tow rope out. But then I... The biggest problem with magnetic contacts is, is you can close them and they'll take the current, but you can't open them or the the arc will weld them Oof. and you're on your way to Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> so you got power and you can't get rid of it, right? So, right. So I made this giant knife switch. Like on the negative line, I had a big switch. Kind of like Frankenstein's laboratory. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just, it, looked, it looked like that. It was a copper bar about two inches wide, about quarter inch thick it was about a foot and a half long it was on a hinge and it went into a clevis and then it had like a little release mechanism then i had a big fuse in parallel with it and then i had a little compression release lever on my left thumb and right after i would get through that trap i'd hit that thing before i pulled the magne- magnetic cell yeah and that's how i did it with a, mag- <laughs> a manual controller okay wow. let's talk about the fir- first time you're going these speeds, I mean, nothing. What? How do you prepare yourself for 200 miles? Are you just hold on for dear life and everything's yeah. a blur around you? And it's like this near silent machine that you're in, right? I, I did everything. I, did, I was a marathoner. I used to run the Bonneville Salt Flats at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning so I'd know the surface tensions. Yeah. yeah, I drank like a fish. <laughs> <laughs> what, water, water or alcohol? <laughs> I drank wine and Jack Daniels. I was. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, I mean, I did everything that you have to do to go to Bonneville. Are, are you an adrenaline junkie? You you get adrenaline automatically when you fool around with bikes that go two hundred miles an hour. No doubt. Yeah. Right. So, I, yeah, now, I can't even imagine what it's like at that speed, though. Yeah. Well, one one thing I'm wondering is, uh, did did you go to Bonneville specifically to prove how fast electric bikes could go? Yeah, I I um, well, I was a short tracker, and then I owned a motorcycle shop, and we had Rickman, so I was a, a trail yeah, rider. Yeah, Rickman. Mm-hmm. We had we had Triumph Rickman and BSA in Connecticut, and so I used to ride every Sunday in the firewoods on the okay. fire trails in Connecticut, and it was really good. So I was in in very good condition, and uh, you know I was. 160 pound three hour marathoner so you know i was doing okay 
not real fast, but I mean, I was a good kid. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the drinking helped, though. <laughs> <laughs> helped smooth everything out. So in your uh, showroom, you have kind of a pictures uh, around the top showing the, the history. That young buck in the in the pictures is that you that good-looking young buck yeah that's my norton atlas <laughs> yeah i used to have hair and no belly <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool you know so- what's funny you know when i was young i had hair like elvis presley i really did wow and i was a 160 pound marathoner and nobody ever asked me for an autograph <laughs> <laughs> now i'm old and fat and bald and everybody wants to sign you a seat or a picture <laughs> or a picture yeah so you, so you you go and you you set more records at bonneville and then then what do you have to do with that silver well, we well we got home. We, we had a great week, and then finally we cracked the frame, so we called it quits. With the two hundred mile mark was right in our gun sight, and we never quite made it with that bike. And then we go home, and and uh, that Dr. Patrick Sully guy says, "I'm sending a truck up to get your batteries." I go, "Well, I need them. I'm going to clean this bike up and take it to the Cincinnati trade show, right?" <laughs> and he says, "Oh yeah, we'll bring you some empty cases, which are much lighter." And um, so I said, "What happens to these?" He said, "We're going to re- recycle them." And I uh, get that silver back in a vault before you go to Leavenworth. <laughs> so they actually did that. They uh, they put all the silver back in, and there was like a fraction of a percent loss, yeah. which nobody ever. So the out. silver came back out of the batteries of this yeah. bike that you've been beating the crap out of at Bonneville. Yeah, went back into the Navy vault. Yeah, and they never knew. And, 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 <laughs> It's it's back to and it's back to pure silver. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. even the Navy, see, they did that. They recycled the batteries in P- Pocketuck for the Nuki subs, and they would change them every cruise. Mm. You see, they, I, okay. they didn't have to change the reactor, but they changed the batteries every right, cruise. Right. And so that was the operation. They had the whole recycling capacity. And gotcha. Everything. So they were accustomed to taking silver out of these batteries and reusing. They they were already into that. So you were okay. you were working for the Department of Defense on your own time a little <laughs> yeah. bit, I guess. <laughs> I got more out of the Navy on Quicksilver than I did when I was an electrician. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So uh, I was wondering if you have uh, any good crash stories. Well, we crashed a lot. Um, None of them are good. So Bonneville, no crashes? No. No, I never failed at Bonneville, but I... I was very focused and very concentrated and very disciplined at Bonneville. Because I'm wondering, too, I mean, you've got a long riding history that predates a protective gear. <laughs> <laughs> no, at Bonneville, we, we had full leathers. Sure. And, but in uh, the 60s and the 70s, the, the protective gear was not up to the par of what it is today. So there was more opportunity for some damage there. Did, did, were you like a cat, just somebody who just came through things unscathed? No, I get I got scathed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been quite a few. One time I was on Sunday, I was going down a road on my Triumph, and this lady pulled out of a liquor store and went right in front of me. Oh. And I had to put the bike on its side right now, or mm-hmm. or hit it head on, right? And I got my forearms all scummed, and I had to walk around. With them above my head for almost Jeez. a week because like of the, the blood pressure <laughs> against the skin, you know, oh. they were all scabbed. Oh, man. Then I got hit on a freeway up uh, near Burlingame one time. I was on a BMW K bike in uh, 88, and um, this guy hit me from behind on purpose. 
Oh, jeez. And I had 14 broken bones, and I went to Peninsula Hospital. I was dead. Oh and these God. two paramedics came running up there, and um, they one guy, you know, hey, you're kind of levitating when you're dying, right? Yeah. One guy says to the other, oh, he's dead. And he says, well, get the oxygen. So he goes back to get the oxygen, and the other guy stands up and kicks me right in the heart with his heel. Mm. Started breathing again. Then they took me down to Peninsula. Wow. What? Oh. Did so, you get wow. the guy that hit you? They did get him. He goes down to Half Moon Bay. This guy's crazy. I'm the third person he's hit with a vehicle. Oh. Really? <laughs> the sheriff walks in. He's in the bar bragging. I just hit a guy on a red bike on a freeway. He probably had a gun. Like he's like paranoia guy. Oh, wait, you're on a BMW K bike. Yeah. That is not the image of a bad biker. But it was red. It was Ferrari red. And wheels were golden. Well, he was just kind of a nutcase, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so anyway, I'm the third person he's hit with a car. Yeah. And he's out of jail on probation from the state of california they give him his meds they got him a job and they bought him the car <laughs> so i'm the i'm his third crime so now he's going to go permanent right yeah but the sheriff walks in to the bar to arrest him and half him and he takes a bar stool cracks him right on the head almost killed him holy crap Whoa. so he got the maximum sentence but uh those are the two big ones that was in i was in a lot of little ones but and did any of these crashes prevent you from getting back on a bike again no i never it's, it just takes a little bit of time you know um, that's true biker that's shit that's real right biker shit yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some crazy motherfucker tried to run me off the road i got back on that <laughs> that is yeah awesome. my grandson he crashed my quad here recently in the backyard and he comes back he's all scrubbled up and he's all embarrassed and everything so i says, so zach what do you got to do and he says well i got to wash my leg i said what are you gonna do after that he said i'm gonna go back on that thing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i'm not gonna crash it this time yeah nice. he's got it done you might have, you might have felt yeah you, know, you must have felt proud huh yeah i, I did like, <laughs> good jeans yeah <laughs> so i'm leading up to the question but prior to the question i'd like to know what some of your favorite bikes over the years have been I uh, I like all bikes. Um, there's no bike I don't like. Amen. Um, they all have attributes, you know, and uh, some of them are technological marvels, and some mm -hmm. of them are just red blood, you know. Mm -hmm. And they they all offer us something. Um, you know the Japanese bikes have the least amount of personality, but the most <laughs> amount of <This> true <laughs> excellence and contribution to mechanical excellence. You know, mm -hmm. uh -huh. so I love Japanese bikes. Um, I've had a lot of nice ones. Um, my favorite American bike of all times, the inline four-cylinder, full-skirted Indian. Indian, right? Nice. I had a beautiful blue and white 1940. Wow. Sweet, and. Um, I, I always love Triumphs. I just I still think that so you, you still know, got a soft spot for for, triumph. for Triumphs on a mass production basis. They were the prettiest bikes. They they just hit you just right mm -hmm. for for something that was the blue collar bike. Yeah, you know it wasn't something that you had to be a rich guy to own. I love the way Triumphs look. And which is interesting because people think of the bad bikers as riding Harleys, yet what were they riding in the wild ones? Well, they, there was almost no Harleys. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was a British invasion. Marlon was on a Triumph. He was on a Thunderbird. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, mm -hmm. With the little fairing headlight and everything, you know. But um, yeah, I like Harleys. I have a beautiful uh, FLH. Now I'm going to ride it to Sturgis next Friday. Cool. Yeah. Is that the one in the showroom? Yeah. 
And I have an FXR Warbird with a twin cam in it. And I got a nice shovel head. I like Harley. What's the uh, rarest bike you've ever owned? The nicest bike I ever owned, was, I had a 06 Indian Camelback. I don't know the Camel. Well, that's like it has a gas tank on the rear fender. Oh. Mm. You know, that's why they call them Camelback. So it's almost like a little bicycle chassis, single cylinder, two and a half horsepower. And mine was beautiful. It was painted in um, black epoxy, and then it was uh, all the plating was actually nickel. So you had that brass patina to it, you know, mm-hmm. beautiful bike. Cool. Very cool. Well, considering you've owned so many bikes and currently own so many bikes, I'm curious to know what your answer will be. Do, do you currently have Here an up-the-butt bike? Uh, <laughs> so you heard I was in a Navy. <laughs> <laughs> so the, Are you saying you had time. many up-the-butt bikes? <laughs> That's the first time you heard that expression. <laughs> you owned a few motorcycles. <laughs> um, no, I, I just like them all. Uh, I keep moving around. Uh, one of my favorite bikes that is an MT-01. Yeah, I love and, um, that bike. I cool bought bike. it in Rotterdam uh, back in 03. And that's before there was any available in Canada. And I brought it in. I got it through customs by writing a letter to say I was going to make parts for it for export. So mm-hmm. that's how I got it through customs because they never mm-hmm. were U.S. smog, right? Right. They never were cow smog either. Yeah. So it's like a commerce investment, I guess, right? Yeah, that's it. There's provisions. That's how you get great cars. In. Right. You say, I'm going to make parts for BMW, da, da, da. Uh-huh. I'm taking notes. Yeah, that's yep. out of the first. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, that Triumph in here is like that. That's the first water-cooled three-cylinder Triumph in the United States, that mm-hmm. trophy. Wow. I brought that in from Rotterdam, too. Nice. So then I rode it around on a dealer plate for years, and uh, then I finally got it titled in... Uh, because you can't get through customers and you can't get through DMV if they never went to smog. Right. Mm-hmm. But I finally titled it and got a license plate on it. Well, let's let's talk about the big project on your plate now. Um, also behind us on one of the work tables is a, it looks like a shoe with three wheels. And this is the new the new Sparrow too. So a lot of people know may know that um, you had the Sparrow and the Merlin, which were single-seater, three-seater cars that in the 90s that were a little ahead of their time. And now you're now that everyone else is caught up, and there are things at like charging stations, and uh, and people are into electric cars now. You're you're coming out with it again. And you, when did you first think of this Sparrow car? Well, um, when I was a little kid, you know, I used to build models, and my father and my uncle and my mother were very supportive. And, and I always used to tell my dad, you know, someday I'm going to make cars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said, well, you're crazier than you look, you know. <laughs> it's impossible. Henry Ford already does that. That passed for support back then. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dad. <laughs> I'm joining the Navy. I'm out of here. But um, I don't need you anymore. <laughs> Make it 40 bucks a month. He's like, I'm, I'm packing your bags. Yeah, I'm out of here. But um, I always had an idea that I wanted to make a, a street vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I, I tried the electric motorcycle in the 70s and then the gas, you know, during the gas lines. And that actually was not a bad idea. And I thought that was going to catch on and get big. And it was part entrepreneurial. I was trying to figure out a way to make 
a seat company bigger, have a bigger product line. You know, seats are kind of like a narrow focus product line. You can't you can't do a lot with it. Right. And um, so then in the 90s, we also were doing really well in Castroville with the seat thing. And um, I felt we needed a bigger market, you know, go into the one, a larger industry rather than motorcycle accessories. And I knew how to, and I had this idea of an electric car. And there was no real electric cars in those days. There was a few around, but they weren't really getting anywhere. And... Um, so sorry, we are literally right next door. That's the landing strip for the, Cal the Fire right strip. there. That's Cal Fire. <laughs> like a couple hundred yards away. Yeah. Airplanes flying past. You can't get much closer. No. <laughs> so the idea was come up with a car that didn't exist that would be under the radar of car makers. So okay. try to get an invention that would be enough different where you would have a market but the big guys didn't care about you. Right. Yeah. So you don't want to say, I'm going to make 150 Fords, right? I mean, you're going to get hammered to death. Sure. You know, and you can't make Leafs and you can't make Corvettes, but what can you do? So I always, 91% of the time you get in a car, you're alone. 78% of Americans only travel 18 miles a day. Yep. And then I, by being a motorcycle rider, you know, small is good. I mean, you can find a place to park it. It can be lighter weight. So then if you make a small car for one person on a fiberglass, it can be an ovalic spherical chassis. So there's okay. no metal frame. Say that again slower. Ovalic spherical ovalic. chassis. Okay, got it. So a helmet is really an ovalic sphere. Mm -hmm. So the car is an egg made out of fiberglass that you're sitting in it, but an egg is so strong that it doesn't need a chassis you can bolt the three corners onto it so you just got rid of a whole bunch of weight right mm -hmm. like you got rid of the whole weight of the rear axle and differential for instance which mm -hmm. is heavy and it's when you have a four-wheel car you need a big metal chassis to compensate for the lateral torsion mm -hmm. in uh -huh. the vehicle but when you have a three-wheel car it's like a tripod it just sits on the ground with no lateral interference Mm -hmm. huh. So you don't need you don't need that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds for the rear axle and the extra wheel. So you almost don't need a because of its because of its ovalic shape, shaped like an egg. You you almost don't need a skeleton. You you can there's no metal frame. Yeah, you can mm -hmm. rely on the shape for the for egg the is the structure. structure egg is the chassis. Wow. The yep. egg is the chassis. Okay. Like a helmet doesn't have any metal frame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. But it can take anything. You know, almost anything. So the idea is you're losing weight. When, and when you make a bigger car, like a two-seater or a four-seater car, the opportunity of the ovalic sphere starts diminishing as you get larger. So the best way to make a strong egg is to keep the size down and keep the shape in it. So I, I wanted to come out with something that was unique and would have an appeal to a very small number of people, I would have my own market. I wasn't going to try to make Corvettes mm. or F-150 Fords or Harley Davidsons. I was going to try to make a Sparrow. So the whole architecture in those days was, who's my market? Just tree huggers. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, we're from Santa Cruz. We yeah. know all about tree huggers. Yeah, what's a tree hugger? Or as my, my dad says, damn tree huggers. I, I lived in Santa Cruz, and when I invented this car, I actually lived in, in Aptos. Yeah. And um, so basically, it was motorcycle riding tree huggers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that is a niche. <laughs> That's a niche. I'm That's kind of, a niche. But see, that, that niche. But see, if you have low volume, and it's handmade. That's all you need to get started. Sure. Right? So we came out with Sparrow, and it was lead-acid cell batteries, because that's all it was still. Mm-hmm. And it was a forklift electric motor, DC motor. Oh. And uh, there was no controllers. So we had a couple different engineers try to develop controllers for it. We ended up making about 300 Sparrows. And we made them all here in Hollister. We, we experimented in Castroville with our first Alpha cars and stuff. Mm-hmm. We moved here, we put it in a line. We made about 300 of them from 1998 to 03. Then that, that was actually a separate company called Corbin Motors. They went out of business in 03. So then um, nothing happened for a few years. I just was counting my losses. And I was kind of brokenhearted because the Sparrow was you know, my little contribution and creativity thing. And I, I was really in love with the idea. Can I point out real quick, from everything I've read, and, and you can confirm this, the reason that Corbin Motors came to an end wasn't because there wasn't a demand for the product. Sounds like a lot of people wanted the product, that you didn't have the ability to create every, you know, all to fill the demand. So, I mean, you were there again with something at a time when people were wanting it. We, uh, that's exactly what happened. In other words, the product was really a great idea. Mm-hmm. We had no trouble finding buyers. We were literally amazed. I'll tell you my San Francisco auto show story. Yeah. So Thanksgiving is always a San Francisco auto show. So 96, we're going to go to San Francisco auto show with the Sparrow. The Alpha Sparrow called the Bug Eye had two little Healy lights in the front. So we put it in our little Hallmark trailer, and I towed it up there with my car. And I get in a parking garage underneath the Moscone Center, and I'm driving the Sparrow down the aisle. (laughs) This big, giant Teamster, man, this guy, he's like 6'4", he's about 6 feet wide, he says... Hey, you, where are you going in that thing? What is that thing? And I and I opened the door. The windows weren't even working. You know, I go, well, I'm Mike Corbin. I got a booth over there next to Buick. <laughs> and I thought the guy was going to pull me out of the car and beat me up. You know? And he says, that's the coolest car I ever saw. And this guy's like 400 pounds, right? He goes, can I get in it? I go, can you? I said, if you can't get out, you're going to be out 14 grand. <laughs> I have to soap you up to get out of there. Yeah. So my son and I, my daughter-in-law and my wife, sat with that car in a 20 by 20 booth for one Saturday and sold 100 cars. Wow. <laughs> no Yikes. one had ever seen a thing before. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. And everyone was a tree hugger, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> went to the right place to yeah, sell. Yeah, went it. to the right place. Yeah. yeah. And you know, we we re- we we knew that, 
like there's no better place to invent something than yeah. Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. You, you think you could have sold 200 of those if you went to a Berkeley auto show? <laughs> <laughs> we had we had Berkeley dealer. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and uh, they had an interesting diet. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, they it just just happened. And it was something that San Francisco really went for. But what happened is we couldn't make them. And then we started taking preferred investors, and we couldn't make cars that retained earnings. In other words, we couldn't make a car at a profit. Mm-hmm. So every time we got an order for thirteen dollars or $14,000, it cost us $70,000 to build the car. Yeah. But we didn't have the depth of finance to deal that, but it mm-hmm. looked like it was imminent. Like right. all that, that was what they call the IPO era, you know, where everybody says, mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to go to Wall Street, you guys are going to get billions, and you can take some of it and make the car better, and you can keep some of it, and you're going to have all these board of directors. But it never really happened because you have to come up with a whole bunch of money to give it to the IPO lawyers first. Yeah. So we never quite did that. So the short and the sick is we never were able, we always we sold cars, we sold 300 of them. A few of them had uh, electronics problems, but basically they're still beloved, and there's a whole support system out there on the internet. They support each other. We think there's about 200 of them still on the road. Cool. Nice. But uh, this time, I I took the, the business model as retained earnings. So this car has no investors, no partners, no no orders, no deposits, no commitments, and no dealers. Mm-hmm. So this is all paid for. So that those gray pieces you're looking at over there, that's about $300,000 right there. But they came out of epoxy molds out back. So in other words, mm-hmm. we made a wooden model, then we blew it apart. Now we have molds. Now that car is almost ready to be assembled in September. As soon as I get back to storage, I'm going to put it back together and drive it around. Cool. But the test car you saw in the showroom has the modern stuff in it. So this car mm-hmm. runs on lithium-ion batteries. It runs on an AC motor and an AC control. It's three-phase AC. So this this car drivetrain is right at the state-of-the-art of what you call energy density. And where are you getting that drivetrain from? Well, the motor is HP Performance, you know, and the batteries are Innerdell. And they are made in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Zero Electric Motorcycles is the West Coast distributor for Interdell. Uh-huh. Oh, so wow. we worked with Richard on that. Mm-hmm. So we have a lithium-ion manganese cobalt battery system, so 20 kW. So this car will do better than most electric cars, where it'll actually go about 150 miles per charge, and it'll go 84 miles an hour. That's sweet. Well, okay, that's that. That's the number I was waiting to hear. I mean, it's a, you're basically wrap yourself in fiberglass, and you're sitting on a wheel and 84 miles an hour. Wow. Sounds like fun to me. But, wow. see, but see, the thing is, we bring you all kinds of additional value. Like, when you stop and get ready to get out of the car, you get 20 new friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> I tell people, if you want to... If you don't want to talk to anybody, you got to practice getting out of the car, locking it, and walking away real quick. <laughs> no doubt. Because <laughs> you're going to be all day talking about it. But what it really is, is because it's an ovalic sphere of fiberglass, and all the weight is in the drivetrain and the passenger, the car itself doesn't weigh much. 
like mm-hmm. a couple hundred pounds, mm-hmm. right? The battery's the heaviest thing at 377. Wow. That car only weighs 1,000 pounds, and it's extremely aerodynamic. If you can look at some of the golf balling and the shaping, you know, that's the bumper. That's pretty yeah. pointed. So what you get is a 1,000-pound car moving one person. So you have less density. In other words, the mass has been reduced in size and weight. Mm-hmm. So that car actually gets the equivalent of 233 miles to the gallon. Shit. That's awesome. Uh, that's up there with Vetter wow. Challenge numbers. Yeah. 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 We could win the Vetter Challenge yeah. with, a, with a production sparrow. Nice. So yeah. wow. you hear that? Is Vetter? it fun to ride though? <laughs> I'm curious. You heard so it first here. Yeah. Vet's a good friend of mine. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> he knows. He's waiting for he's me. <laughs> <laughs> so this is um, the sparrow we're looking at, and I always tell everyone when they come here, always look up because the cool shit is on the top of the shelves. <laughs> yeah. Is that a Merlin up there? Is that a Merlin body? No, that body. That's a wooden model. And that was going to be Sparrow 2. Oh, okay. That was going to be our new Sparrow until we found out that we have to go to lithium-ion batteries. Okay. Then that design didn't work, and we made a better design. So that was one of the interim developments. Hmm. That's all wood and bondo. Cool. So, so you had you had the Merlin that was running off of a V-twin engine. Yeah. Is there a reason why? You didn't pursue well, the that? Mer- the Merlin went out of business with the Sparrow Company. Okay. So that was um, what I would. I came out with Merlin trying to save Sparrow. Mm-hmm. In other words, I could I could get more money from Merlin's, like 24 grand. Right. And I could get orders. Like, I think we went to Sturgis one year and we had something like $7 million worth of orders in one weekend. Wow. For the Merlin uh, Roadster. But... We couldn't make them, you know, right. like we got home. The company was so weak already from not being at retained earnings for that many years that there was no way to go. I mean, we just were in the hole deep, lots of millions. It it looked so cool because you could see the engine in the front. Oh, uh, you could. It was beautiful. We, if we could have afforded to put that factory together, we'd still be making them like crazy. Hmm. People still want them every day. So is that something in the future, you think, with the Sparrow 2 coming back? Well, I'm 71 years old, and I, what I'm doing with Sparrow is taking what I think is the ultimate product. Mm-hmm. Like making a car like the Morgan three-wheeler, for instance. Right. Is is a lot of fun. There's a lot of red blood there. That's That's really cool. Morgan's doing a great job. We think Merlin was more American, you know. Um, But I love Morgans. I love what they're doing. But I I see myself trying to make a contribution to the solar revolution. Right. Are you, wait, you sound like a tree hugger right now. I I always was sort of a tree hugger. (laughs) Yes. You can be be a lot of things. You can hug a tree. Yeah, you can hug a tree. Still eat a roast beef sandwich. Yeah, you can, you can. Yeah, I was a vegetarian for a while, and my marathon time went up and up and up, and I had to start eating fish again. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're you're one off one off in these. This is the plan. Th- well, this car is um, this is going to be the alpha car. Okay. So those parts are from molds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, those molds are out back. They're epoxy molds, so they're ready to go. So after I make the first car, then I can actually make one car every day. Wow. But my mm. my plan for sixteen is. To start making the first 100 cars, and I call them the Beta Club, 
So right. I'm going to get mine done. And like I say, the drivetrain for that car is in my, my test car you see in the showroom. It's an old Sparrow, but it's got all the modern junk in it, right? So I already have all my road testing done and my math and everything. And I test in the same components that are going in that car. So I'm going to drive that around. I'm going to start doing the marketing on the Internet. It's going to be all direct sales. The only way you can get one is you come here and pick it up. Yep. So we're a motorcycle license manufacturer and motorcycle license dealer here at Corbin. We don't want any dealers, and we don't even really want to sell too many cars outside of Northern California. Yeah. For the first 100 cars. It's for proximity. Yeah, well, you know, if there is a problem, I can pick it up and fix it. You sure. can come here. They almost need nothing. Yeah. You know, in service and maintenance. My other car, I went halfway around the world, 12,500 miles. Costs $800 worth of electricity to go halfway around the world. That's pretty mm, awesome. Pretty good. <laughs> I checked tire pressure three times, keep them at 40 PSI, and I washed the car. <laughs> wow. Halfway around the world. That dirt was dragging you down a little bit, huh? I like shiny. I <laughs> yeah. like yeah. shiny. I can't stand it if there's a bug on it. Yeah. Bagel wants to know if you do financing. <laughs> <laughs> you saw Is the gears so? turning in my head? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I gotta, we're, we're not even going to offer financing, actually. Yeah. You got to get to run your credit card, or you go to, or you could go to your credit union. Mm-hmm. Let, let me tell you why I think you're going to succeed. There's something that I have a lot of respect for you for because you mentioned earlier that you went to Harvard. At what age did you go to Harvard? I went to Harvard when I was old. Let me see. Uh, yes, I went to Harvard when I was around sixty. What oh, I love wow. is that you already have a successful business, but how can you? make yourself better and more prepared. And the fact that you then went to Harvard Business School to get to learn how to do things better and to learn from mistakes that you've made and how to succeed. I love that about you. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, um, to have your own business, you need you need to get as much knowledge. You gotta be a student of yeah. the world. I mean, yeah. you gotta understand your customers and, and that's what I think we do better than any other company in the motorcycle industry, except Polaris, they're really good at it. And um, and you gotta understand your technology, you gotta invent technologies, like all the technology we use here, we invented that, we have patents on it. And then you realize, man, these business school guys are way ahead of you. They know, mm-hmm. they know stuff you don't know. And if I didn't go to Harvard, we never would have made it through the 08 collapse. Yeah. Wow. Never. Never would have made it. Mm-hmm. No, not a prayer in hell. Hmm. I, I had a quick question for you that brings back. I was wondering when we had the, uh, you know, the, the collapse in the economy. And, you know, we've lost almost all of our dealers in Santa Cruz. Um, a lot of shops have closed. I was wondering, though, did that hit you as well? Or were people buying accessories for their older bikes because they couldn't buy a newer bike? Yeah, we got creamed. Um, Did you? Okay. We um, <clears throat> we downsized forty percent very rapidly. Wow! And if we hadn't have done that, we would have burned ourselves down procrastinating, mm-hmm. and that's what a lot of companies did. The industry downsized from five hundred thousand bikes a year down to about three hundred thousand bikes a year. So yeah. you lost about forty percent of your industry, and it hasn't yeah. come back yet. Hmm. You're right. still at three hundred thousand new bikes a year now. And that's up about 15,000 from last year. And that's been going on since 09. So those guys that went out of business haven't even been replaced yet, if yeah, you notice that. Yeah, a point. Yep. And the biggest problem we have is the younger people coming in. There are not really that many coming in. 
Hmm. Well, yeah, that's, again, that's why I wanted to make sure everyone knew about this. So when Bagel orders his Sparrow 2, does he get to <laughs> pick what color seat design? You can, yeah, this, uh, <laughs> there this, you go. You can pick what color. They're all going to be the same color. You can pick the <laughs> pinstriping on it and uh, the color of leather. It's kind of like the Henry Ford. Uh, yes. You can have any color you want as long as it's black. Yeah. <laughs> but we're going to make, it's kind of a club deal, like. There's there's a hundred cars, and we're watching your batteries on the internet on your cell phone, making sure that you're you're not letting them not get charged or something. And we can tell what your car is doing, and we want you to communicate with us. Be it kind of a club member, you know, you get a little trophy and everything where you've been. <laughs> there's only a hundred tags mm-hmm. that, of that tag, that VIN tag. And um, we're going to learn a lot. But this is like a great marketing strategy mm-hmm. because it's almost exclusive. Like I got one of the new Sparrows. Those are your best selling. Those are your best sell- sales guys. Like who sells the Teslas? People that own them. Yep. yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. So we don't have money to go out and set up a big dealer network and set up all the Honda dealers in California. So we just decided let's make a club out of it. You're doing you're doing it right. Yeah. And and there's no borrowing. There's no leverage on the supply side. There's no partners and there's no deposits. So like nobody we never owe anybody anything. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah. every time we sell a car, we actually put $1,000 minimum into our savings account. So that's what you call a retained earnings business model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost nobody believes that it'll work. Yeah. That, it does. That's how the seat company works. Mm-hmm. We have certain criteria of sustainability. And the last time I didn't know about that stuff, and I didn't do it with Sparrow One, and that's what made the company fail eventually. Yeah. Right. So I learned that whole lesson like, yeah, you can get a great invention. You can bite off more and you can chew. Okay, we gotta have a digestive track for that. You know, I mean, yeah. we gotta know how to do it. Too much of a good thing is not a good thing. Yeah, I've yeah. seen um, I've seen a lot of uh, people in the trade work do like the opposite of what you do, where they're really good at what they, you know, with their hands, they, you know, are just top, you know, their field, and everybody knows how good they are, and then they get tired of making money for someone else, so they decide the best idea is to like, well, I'm so good at this, let me just own my own company. And then I feel like that's like a huge mistake. And I've seen it so many times where these excellent, you know, trade workers or whatever, all of a sudden become terrible business people because they have no concept of the business side of owning a business, dealing with customers, finance, you know, payroll, even just talking to people because they're buried, you know, under a house somewhere for days and they're really good at that. And, you know, that's what produces the money. So, and then there's like, like you're saying when we first got here, you, you don't sleep, you know, this is where you eat. <laughs> Sleep yeah, and this, shit like yeah, this. Yeah, this is not this is not a forty hour work week. It's, this is a it's life. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. And, and but think about it. Like, what better way to live than have gotten up every day and did what you just love to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's even in 08. Yeah, you know that in 08 you go and there was another it was a post Carter recession. Nineteen eighty was just as bad, not not as bad, but it, proportionally it was just as bad for me. But you come into your office, you're the CEO, right? So, no, no, I ride motorcycles and I invent stuff. No, 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 you're a CEO. You're not going to be doing any of that if you don't get through 08. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's everything. Like you got a hundred people, you got to make payroll for it. It's like eighty grand a week, right? Yeah. And you got one hundred and fifty motorcycle seats a day. You got to get them out the door, and they got to be good. But you have to do everything, and and that's like my assistant. She says, "So this guy wants to talk to you." I said, "Doors open. Send him in. I'll talk to anybody." Yeah. But you have to do it all, and I I I know exactly where you're coming from. I was a small time electrical contractor, and I mean. In those days, I wired a guy's house one time, and he didn't pay me. So I didn't know what to do. You pull all the wires out. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Go back and yank those fuckers out. I backed my pickup truck up to his house. I stood on a tailgate, and I started taking his meter off his house. <laughs> the lights all went out, and he'd come around, and he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking my stuff back. Yeah. Right. What do you mean? I said, well, you owe me two grand, and you owe me two grand for three months, and I got little kids, and it's starting to snow out, and, you know, we're cold. We don't have any money for food, and now you're in the house. It's going to have no heat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not going to have any light either. Yeah. He paid me real quick. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet. Yeah. Okay, so at 70, how do you find the energy to do all of this? Because, like, I, I want to, like, be there when I am when I get there. Like, you don't have yeah. any choice. Um, yeah. You know, you know, keep yourself desperate. Like, you know, <laughs> no, you know what? You know what's the problem with people is they're always trying to find a way to get comfortable. Yeah, yeah. momentum mm-hmm. is good once you have. Stay it, you hungry and stay. Going. You know, like you're seventy years old, go start a car company. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I'm putting that in my mind right now. Yeah, do it. Company. No, like start yeah. one with uh, no wheels. Yeah, that gravitates. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Better, it's cooler than a sparrow. It ain't got any right. rubber yeah. on it, right? There you go. Carla, I can't believe it's it's much better than better than a sparrow. Yeah, kind of like I can't believe it's not butter. Kind of yeah. <laughs> but but Mark Twain said it. You know, if you do what you love doing, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, there True. you go. But you can't you can't be a pansy. You can't just say oh, I'm gonna. I'm going to paint daisies and sell them down at the wharf. You know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> you know what I Oh, I didn't yeah, sell right. it. Well, hold on. <laughs> that is almost exactly what Knock does, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> close to what I do. I, I did close is, to what I, I do. Well, so what do you do? Well, I'm a production artist. I have a, I'm a graphic designer. Down, oh, down at the boardwalk, yeah. which is next to the wharf. <laughs> I used to make kitchen knives. And that, he, that, he I paint, got tired of doing he that. He made me a decal for my motorcycle. Yeah, he paints <laughs> the signs. At the boardwalk. Well, what's wrong with that? We need signs. Where do you buy your fish, right? Yeah, well, you know. Have you ever painted a daisy? I think I might have. Yeah, see, there you go. <laughs> digitally, though, a not, daisy or not, two. not like with paintbrush. But you it's did all make a pumpkin, that's yep. for sure. I did make a pumpkin. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, I think it's amazing what you're doing. I And I appreciate that you're Thank you, here Liza. part of our community and that you made yourself available to us. Well, we love being in the motorcycle business. We like what you're doing, and we like to have people come here and see how well our staff takes care of them and um, you know kind of perpetuate the art form I wish there were more people who would see how you're running uh, the with the service how you're running this business and 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 replicate it because I I don't know anyone else who's doing this I mean just the fact that as you come to the factory and are waiting for your seat to get made what are you going to do while you're waiting for your seat oh well it's easy we get we put in a 50s diner that you can sit down and have a meal and then go ahead and take a self-guided tour of the entire factory and watch everybody working nobody does that it's it's really cool i love just wandering through here and, and seeing everything happening yeah we love doing it um we love having the people come here and you know first of all it gives them a deep appreciation of the people that build the seats mm-hmm. you know that it's the guy out there on the sewing machine and the rivet gun that that is your true artist you know yeah but we're going to do the same thing with the sparrow you're going to come here and um 
you can watch your car being made and underneath the hood everybody who works on your car will sign it you know and cool. we're going to do that with the sparrow too and carve it to their ass no, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna convince them that the seat in there is already good, <laughs> <laughs> and we're gonna learn you to plug that thing in when you're not using it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I rec I recommend to people who are either local or to people who are coming through because a lot of people hop on their bikes and go travel and make California one of their destinations. This is a must must see that you must stop here in Hollister and and visit the factory and the fact that you're open on Saturdays too is really awesome so yeah I thank you again for just everything you've done you've been a, a role model and an icon in the motorcycle community and you know for sharing your stories I hope maybe we'll come back out again and, and drag even more stories because mm -hmm. I have a feeling you've got a lot of good gems in there well you know we maybe ought to come um once we get the sparrow line done yeah yeah and we'll do a little bit of test riding and oh uh, my god sure and we'll show you how to get 233 miles to the gallon and maybe we can pull the mto one out it actually starts fairly nicely yeah, yeah. how's that yeah. how's that indian scout in there the indian scout's a nice bike I, um, that thing is yeah we bought so that sweet. bike and we got the seats developed for it we're taking it to sturgis with us and uh it's a really great bike the you know, thing is cool. beautiful. I, yeah. That's, that's, way that's cool my bike. up the butt bike. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of like uh, if you have a street glide in your garage and then a scout next to it. It's almost the perfect combination of you know like it replaces um, your need for a sportster in a way. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, and for anyone who wants to see what's going on here or to follow you, they can just go to your website Corbin.com. Yep, which is actually a very well-built site. There's a lot to see just on the site itself. And, uh, hey, if you want to see what a, a Corbin seat would look like on your bike, go do the virtual seat maker on there. Yep, that's right. We finally got that thing working. We've been working on it for a couple of years. Yeah, cool. that's really cool. So, um, Zach, you want to tell people how to reach us? You can find us online at MotorcyclesAndMisfits.com, on Facebook at Reed-CycleSantaCruz, um, you send us an email at RecycleMotorcycleGarage at gmail.com. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at... 831-291-5112. And... Order pizza. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I thought I was going to make it through. <laughs> I didn't want to be the one to do it. I'm just, I just like, ah. Hey, call and share your Corbin stories. I want to hear if anyone else is had good and bad experiences i've never heard a bad experience other than knock who says he sat on a seat once but yeah, he was, it was pushing on his thigh it was it was it wasn't made for me all right i'm just saying it was a sport bike and i was borrowed whatever yeah i mean seats, I are, seats are like shoes not every shoe is going to fit you perfect right, right. but these corvin seats damn near perfect fit almost every time sure so on that note thank you everyone for listening um, I think we're going to finish this up. This is Liza. I am Zach. Mike. Your all friend, Jonathan. This is Knock. Bagel. Mike Corbin. Thanks for coming. And we are out. Cool. 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 cool.